Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. This month, we have a great episode with Dr. Claire Donnelly. Claire is currently a second year resident here at Yale. Although we recorded the episode a couple months ago when she was an intern. She hails from Berkeley, California, went to college at Yale University, and earned her MD at Columbia. I think of Claire as the philosopher of our residency, and I love that she brings a unique perspective to our program. She has traveled the world on various global health initiatives and always poses great questions in our quarterly department book club. And just so you know, Yes, she can ride a unicycle. I had a fantastic time speaking with Claire, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Claire Donnelly. Dr. Claire Donnelly, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I'm so excited for us to finally talk. I remember last time when I had um, both Stephanie and Dion on, I think you were in Spain, which sounded amazing. I was very sad to miss it. Thank you very much for having me. All right, Claire, first things first, please tell me about your background. So hometown, college, medical school, all that jazz. From Berkeley, California. It's a fantastic place to grow up. There's things like the How Berkeley Can You Be Parade, and they encourage creativity and um, exploring your passions and hiking and recycling and composting. Um, Hashtag Berkeley. It was a great place to grow up. And I had, uh, I had a dad who was very interested and invested in science and chemistry and a mom who was very creative, taught me how to play the piano, was mm-hmm. a fantastic educator. And that, that was a very good combination for me. But UC Berkeley, I went to to public school my whole life, but UC Berkeley was a little bit too close. It was was about six blocks away from my house. Oh, wow. I I went to Yale because I I needed to try out the East Coast for a bit. And it was a little bit of a culture shock, a little bit more hierarchical than I was used to. But it's a great place to go to university because they also kind of explore, encourage you to explore anything that you want and give you the resources to do that is how I initially got into uh, global health, actually. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then med school? Yeah, you know, I didn't know I wanted to go to medical school as an undergrad. I took this class called Malaria, Lyme, and Other Vector-Borne Diseases as a sophomore. And I became fascinated with the physiology of malaria because at the time I was very invested in anthropology And malaria is one of the oldest diseases in the world that we are aware of and has shaped human history in ways that we can only sort of piece together, but it's also very interesting physiologically because it has many different stages of its life cycle. And it's one of the only parasites that still utilizes humans as part of its um, natural life cycle. Most human, most, parasites that infect humans are sort of incidental hosts, but humans for the malaria parasites are intentional hosts. It's part of their life cycle happens inside of people. And I thought it was a very interesting disease. And I wanted to go somewhere in the world where malaria existed, 
which is what initially brought me to um, Malawi and got me started on global health. Yeah. Well, now that we're talking about global health, let us delve into that. So I know that you've gone on many trips and done many projects. And so this is the part, Claire, where you humble brag and you talk about all the things that you've done and all the amazing kind of trips and things that you were, have been able to do. <laughs> uh, I've, been, I've been lucky. I got a research grant as an undergrad to do um, a project with malaria and first time mothers because the malaria parasite can uh, be altered slightly in um, first time mothers and actually implant on the placenta. And so even women who have developed sort of a natural immunity to the parasite during their first pregnancy, it's quite dangerous for them. Mm. So I was very interested in this and I focused my research project on sort of under age 20 first time mothers who had the least health literacy were the most vulnerable and the most in need of kind of resources. Mm. And so this took me to Lunguena, which is kind of right on the shores, the Eastern shores of Malawi. So right between the lake and Mozambique. I lived in, um, in the village. <laughs> I, had to have help, you know, getting water every day and uh, cooking. And it was a very different lifestyle, but also a very good place to kind of be an anthropologist and learn what, um, what was actually necessary in the community, which I think is a really good global health lesson that everyone kind of comes in with some perceived idea about what certain communities need, and it is often not what those communities feel they are most in need of. Mm. So one of the things that I learned is that the people in the village were not very concerned with malaria, even though I was concerned <laughs> with them having malaria. <laughs> and part of that was a, a failure um, for them to really see that the temporal link between having malaria in pregnancy and having a low birth weight and then later death of their underweight children because temporally it's not very synchronous hmm. um, and part of it is that there were just a lot of things a lot of people were just poor or didn't have you know had food insecurity um, or had HIV or had any of the other numerous just life challenges that exist in one of the poorest countries in the world based on GDP per capita. So that was very eye-opening for me. And I also was kind of frustrated with how slow the movement of public health is. Right. You and I have talked about this, about how you were considering like a career in public health versus a career in medicine. I was very excited about it. Yeah, I thought it was a wonderful way to um, help a lot of people was to go into some type of policy, large scale policy changes, but it just, it moved so slowly. And I, I thought ultimately when I was there, I ended up coming to realize that if I wanted to make the most impactful changes in individuals' lives, I should go into economic policy and give microloans to women. 
And I didn't want to do that because I'm not so interested in finance. And then I, there were many doctors who work in the area as well and many surgeons and I to, to work with some of them. And I just became very excited about the idea of surgery. It seemed like a much more tangible way to have um, an impact. And it was kind of then and there that I decided I was going to move back to the United States and go to medical school. <laughs> wow. So you went into medical school knowing that you wanted to do surgery rather than like family medicine, pediatrics or what have you. Yes, absolutely. And um, then why ortho? Well, I, I feel like maybe a lot of people who don't have any family in medicine, it's difficult to actually know what the different types of medicine that you can practice are. So I True. had a basic understanding that there was medicine and there was surgery. And beyond that, I sort of didn't know what the different, I guess you could say specialties were. And so in that regard, I was fortunate that Columbia is one of the programs that has all of its medical students rotate through orthopedics. Mm. And it was actually my first rotation. And I think part of it was just how fun orthopedic cases are. <laughs> you, you get to use hammers and it's a lot of big movement. It's incredibly tangible. You're physically manipulating bones. I, I loved the actual mechanics of it. And I've always been very mechanically oriented. I, you know, I, I have worked with horses my whole life and that's very kind of motor, large bone focused. Um, I, you know, my dad taught me how to split wood with a mall when I was about seven years old. And so I'm very used to kind of swinging a sledgehammer. I, I just, everything about it was very mechanically appealing to me. And then I, as I, you know, later I ended up doing research in orthopedics and I, I realized that there's this whole other really intellectual, exciting side to it. The, um, science of bone healing and, um, you know, just the, the mechanics of alignment and how bones have to be reapproximated in order to heal and how, uh, you know, the actual basic science of bone healing and how that can be versus primary versus secondary and all of the different subspecialties of orthopedics, the, the soft tissue components of bone alignment and how you really have to be incredibly intellectual in addition to the very basic principles of orthopedics. I mean, really at its core, it's just broken bone, fix it, or bone out of alignment, fix it. But actually doing that, I think is incredibly um, intellectually stimulating. And I love that ortho has both of those things about it. It will always, it will always keep my attention. And it's really fun to look at x-rays as well. <laughs> I've, you know, I've been doing gen surge for the past four months. And as much as gen surge is great, something that I find very satisfying about an orthopedic procedure is you can always go back and look at the x-ray and see what was done. It's really easy to just understand how the surgery impacted the outcome because you can get an x-ray and, you know, say six months down the line, you can get a repeat x-ray and you can see if the bones have healed or not. Whereas general surgery, I think it's much more the diagnostics are, at least to me, feel much looser. I agree. For me, there was just far too much poop. 
it was just too much. I remember, oh my God, my, my med student rotation, I, I remember walking into the ED and this guy had a bowel perforation. And I remember walking into that room and just the smell of this guy (laughs) who literally had had this. And I was just like, no, no, thank you. You know? And I think it's, I that's so true what you say about that, Claire, where it's just like, you can see what you've done and it's so tangible. Um, it's like the epitome of instant gratification, at least for me. Cause I like my sister, cause I was, I'm the same boat as you, my parents aren't doctors. And so yeah. um, my sister is very much, she went into neurology, whereas I went into orthopedics and it like fits our personalities mm-hmm. perfectly. Cause yeah. my sister is one who loves to cogitate. Like she just like, like, mm, like, let me think of the ways of why this occurred, <laughs> you know? Whereas for me, I'm very much like hit the ground running. Like, let me do this, 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 this. I need to have like just this instant gratification. I think like surgery is just something that was, oh, I had to be, I had to be, an, I had to be a surgeon. I couldn't handle just like giving a medication and just like, let's see if this gets better. Yeah, I, I feel very similarly. I'm incredibly outcomes driven. Yes. And, uh, you know, almost such that I'm more of a consequentialist. <laughs> <laughs> Less, I, I, yeah, it's, it's all about how it turns out for me. Yeah. Um, now, Claire, I, I do want to get back to the global health thing, yeah. that whole thing, um, and talk about, you know, you are someone who, as a young in your career, you've done so much. And I was wondering if, what advice do you have for those folks who are thinking about global health? And they're like in the beginning stages of that path. What advice do you have for those folks who are just trying to get their feet in the water in this? Hmm. Yeah, mentorship and just looking for opportunities. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is plenty of funding. There are plenty of opportunities. You really just need to be interested in it. Um, And also maybe not get discouraged. I think that some people maybe try one thing and it's not a great experience and they, they kind of give up on the whole affair. Yeah. I, mean, I, I spent that year in Malawi and then I, um, in medical school, I knew I wanted to go back. And so I applied for another grant and I went to Kenya and then I, um, applied for another <laughs> opportunity and I with UCSF and I went to you know Uganda and Tanzania primarily but all of those were with with different mentors it's really just looking for opportunities there's so many ways to do it some of them more structured than others mm-hmm. um, I mean there's year-long research grants most medical schools have some type of program I think finding a mentor is, is great, but even without a mentor kind of dipping your toe in the (laughs) proverbial water as a medical student can then set you up for understanding kind of what is needed later. And there's lots of different models of global health as well. And I feel like everyone kind of has a, has an opinion on how to do it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I still, I still, I'm coming to terms with, um, the different ways and, and how I feel it is, uh, you know, sort of best done. But, um, what is the way that you think is best done? Cause I feel like you have a, you've, you've, we actually had an entire journal club about this recently. <laughs> um, 
which was great food, a great conversation as always. (laughs) Um, And I was wondering what in your mind is the ideal way one does global health, or at least from maybe, maybe as a learner. So like as a medical student or as a resident, what is the ideal way for it to be done in your mind? Well, we have actual data on this. I mean, I have my opinions, but but we do have, have data on this. And what the, the data seems to show is that at least local institutions prefer long-term commitments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a trainee, without essentially the capacity to make such long-term commitments, because you're in training, you are not an institution, I think that the ideal way is to do it through an already established um, program, which I, I did not do when I went to Malawi. I made my own thing, which was good for other reasons. And um, I think that setting it up with intentionality to establish some type of follow-up is probably the most important thing. And then there's, there's several models within that, but I think as long as it's not kind of a, a short-term thing for the benefit of the person going there right. to either, you know, conduct research that doesn't benefit the community or to um, have their own just build operative caseload or, or something that's really for um, person going to any institution. Yeah, I suppose with intentionality would be a good, good answer. That's very vague. No, I support, I support. I think it's hard. I think it's, it's a, something that people are still trying to figure it out. Um, and I think we're, we're very fortunate here where we have journal clubs about global health. And I think that that's not, you know, as common um, elsewhere. Yeah. But speaking as life as a learner, I do want to talk about something that I found rather upsetting, um, which was the data that came out from the recent match, which, um, basically said that 39% of those individuals who applied to orthopedic surgery did not match, which basically means that only three out of five applicants found a position at a residency. In my mind, this is absolutely scary. Um, And if I was a medical student, I would be anxious out of my mind and just a little stress ball. so I like, I don't even know where to start, but what, what are your kind of preliminary thoughts when you heard that there was such a high unmatch rate this year? I mean, you're absolutely right. It's incredibly scary. I remember as a medical student, I sat down with the deed of my school and I said, is there any other way to fix bones that's not in orthopedics? <laughs> because it's so hard to match and she essentially told me no (laughs) um so I think it's it's so tough because it you know it really is the only way you have to go through the match um and if you want to fix bones I mean of course there's plastics which does the hand and there's neurosurgery which does the spine and there's ENT which you know does a little bit of all the stuff above your neck but I completely agree with you it's it it feels really hard and grateful to match to have matched and I certainly would not have done it without all of the support of the the mentors that I had I mean I feel very lucky in that regard 
Um, but yeah, I know, I know a lot of people that, you know, were unable to match and it's even harder as a reapplicant. <laughs> right. No. And I feel like it's just like the number of applications that you need just keeps getting higher and higher. And, mm-hmm. um, I, th- I, and I think what's unfortunate is that when it comes to research, um, it, it, like, I feel like it's, it's kind of where you're at, which I think is unfortunate. Like when I was at medical school, it wasn't as though you were able to like be plugged into a lab and you're able to like crank out papers. Um, like I remember when I applied, I had maybe three papers. I was the primary author on every single one of them, but I was like, it was something where I, I had these projects that I had to take from start to finish. It wasn't as that, whereas here, I'm able to be a part of so many, it, it's, Yale is just this machine where they have, people are able to just crank out things and I might not be the primary author on them, but I'm like a part of the project. And so my name gets on it. And I think that that, I think that there is a disadvantage for those individuals who are at places where there's not that sort of research heavy um, machine, you know, and especially because of the fact that they took away step one scores, which was, you know, pros and cons about that, but it just kind of limits what you're able to, um, I don't know, I feel like it's like, how do you choose these applicants and how do you make sure that the, you're seeing everybody and seeing these people as individuals and what they've done rather than just kind of harping on, okay, well, we're gonna focus on step two scores rather than the step one scores or how many publications, like what is the actual number, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's a meeting of the minds. I didn't get an invitation. I don't know if you did, Claire, but I certainly didn't get an invitation with regard to <laughs> what they're thinking about how to solve this. But I'm sure the program directors across the country are trying to figure this one out. Yeah. So, so, so rough. Uh, I don't know. I, I remember being very stressed out that I wasn't going to be able to rotate anywhere. But even yeah. with, you know, rotations it's, it's, I feel incredibly challenging also to be a sub I. Yeah. Um, it's so hard. I, I, yeah, I agree with you. My sub I's, I think it was, it's like, cause you're trying to, it's, it's a tryout for four weeks. Mm-hmm. And first of all, the cost of it all, yeah, um, it's so you expensive. Know, it's so expensive. You're going away. You're living somewhere, someplace for four weeks. You are renting a car. Um, and then you're trying to like show yourself and show these people what you can do. Um, and even like, yeah. Mm. I mean, we're trying to increase diversity in ortho as well. And I, even without having to fly places for my, for interviews, because I happened during COVID, just all of the costs of even just having a suit to wear for my Zoom interviews, I added it all up. I mean, I needed so much financial support from my parents. Mm-hmm. I truly don't know how anybody does it without that, especially when you add in sub eyes and even just, you know, the anxiety of having to think about that as you show up at 3 a.m. and leave, you know, be the last one to leave and get everything right all the time. I mean, it's just, I think, challenging to be on for four weeks. Yeah. Um, with all of those other things that are inevitably going on in people's lives. Um, I guess a little bit like being a resident, but. 
I know. I feel like what's I think honestly, the one what I loved about being a resident and being an intern was that I knew like, okay, these people like they have my back in the sense that like they're going to support me because they want me to do well. Like it's not like they don't want to fire me. It's not something that they actively want to do. Um, And I remember like once I got once I became like an intern, I remember just having that like I don't have to like like it's not as though I'm being graded on every rotation and I'm not like it, it was like that level of anxiety just kind of like went away and I was able to just like treat patients and just like learn and I, I remember that being a very like uplifting moment for sure oh absolutely I mean I was lucky enough to get to start on ortho and as you know we have a very <laughs> close relationship with our pgy3 class as interns yes you do I, I just fell hard for every single one of them. <laughs> I know that it's a great class. That's a great class. Um, just, they're so great. And they're so great at, at educating and being fun and, and helping you involved. I mean, I, I just absolutely love working with them. And I'm excited I get to again next year. I, I snuck a peek at who I'm working with for my schedule. And it's very exciting. Good. Although Good. not you, so sad about that. <laughs> I know, I know. It's okay, but you know what I will say. You know, just for the listeners and for those folks who are medical students, I what I I think in terms of if I heard this information, what I would honestly do is just reach out to those who you know. You know what I mean? Like reach out to your resident mentors, reach out to your attending mentors, and just kind of say like, okay, what do I need to do? Um, because I think it's just once you, once, if you have that mentorship, um, you know, and, and if you don't happen to have mentors at your institution, I would say like, first of all, feel free to email me. Second of all, there's like the Ruth Jackson Society. They have a whole slew of mentors who are like ready to rock and roll and provide mentorship. There's um, the Gladden Society, um, Nth Dimension, so many more that are just available out there. Um, so that's like, I think what I would say to those medical students who, if there are any who listen to the podcast. Um, so yeah. What do you think, Claire? I absolutely agree with you. One of the, um, medical students, you know, medical students that I've worked with has just cold emailed just various people that you may share research interest with, or just any interest with institutions and they have turned into real mentors. Yeah. Um, mentors that I have worked with in, in one capacity or another. I mean, I, I know that I matched because of, of the strength of their letters and, and even interviews that I got were just from, you know, sending an email or a letter to various, I mean, it's, it's a, or there was not that big of a community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, I have conflicted thoughts about it because I, <laughs> I know that some people are just better connected and have better access. Right. Um, but I, I, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong to cold email someone. If you have a, a real, like something real to say. Yeah. No. And what's, if anybody gets hope about cold emails, I've a lot of the opportunities that I've had in my career, have been out of cold, cold emails. Like when I had a gap year between college and med school, like that my, I cold emailed people and I got like a job and a, and a research paper. And then like literally 90% of the people who are on this podcast, I cold email them 
and I say like, hey, I have this podcast. Would you like to be on it? And then everyone is always so nice and they're like, of course. And so, yeah, the power of a cold email is, it's a powerful one for sure. That's how I set up my whole research project in Malawi. Yeah. I called, no, I... emailed a professor in um, Finland oh whose papers I had read. <laughs> oh my word. And she connected me with her translators. She connected me with her local contacts. And she also connected me. Um, well, actually, no, I cold emailed another professor at the University of Malawi. And he also helped me set up, you know, IRBs and right. things like that. So two cold emails led to that year-long research project in Malawi. Oh, that's awesome. The last kind of topic I did want to talk to you, you about is teaching and I am a now senior resident and you are a junior resident. And so there is this dynamic of um, how we teach, we as senior residents teach junior residents, which is something that's so important when you're in academics and is something that literally is never taught, um, which I think is absolutely hilarious. Um, mm -hmm. And so as someone who is a junior resident, I would love to hear your thoughts about what you think you find to be very helpful from those who are educating you, whether it's something you've experienced or whatever, what you've seen, things that you've loved, things that you've hated, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a great question. And something that I have thought about a lot, but also find difficult, you know, difficult to truly articulate and necessarily always understand. There's certainly people that I have really enjoyed working with. Um, I'm just trying to think about how to articulate what it is. I think something um, that I found that now, like at least in my career, I found that I enjoy working with people because you will be wrong. Like 100% as a learner, you are going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. In those moments, I value those people who make me think about it and have me try to solve that issue rather than making me feel like an idiot. Because like there, there, of course, there are the instances where like I, my incision is going to be like five centimeters too high, or I'm like thinking like, like just as a learner, you are going to be wrong, like period. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I really enjoy people who be, who are like, are you sure? And you're just like, well, you know, rather than being like, how could you think this? Like, da, 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 or, you know, what have you. And so yeah. I think for me, I enjoy those people who really try to you know, or even like one of our attendings, Dr. Gibson, when he asks you a question, he puts a hint of the answer in the actual question itself. But I'm so um, bad at picking up on his hints. I might as well. He makes fun of me now for how bad I am. Give you his, uh, love him. But yeah, so what, what do you think, Claire? I'm talking too much. You know, I, I think there's two separate things. So at least as an ortho intern, there's definitely a technical component truth to learning. And then as just a junior resident on a team, I want to say that there's also just a component of having different managerial styles. Mm -hmm. And I think my, the, my sort of favorite people to work with are those who combine both the ability to technically guide you through actually learning something and mm -hmm. it just being effective managers 
Um, well said. So, you know, something like placing my first femoral traction pin was quite scary, but I, you know, I, I remember doing it and I remember who I was on with and we had a little chat as we were walking down to the OR about exactly what I was going to do and why I was going to do that and what I was going to avoid and the things that I needed to get ready. And then I did all of those things. And then as it was coming time to place the pin, I knew exactly what I was doing. I understood the anatomy and I did it. And it, I remember, you know, there was like one adjustment to say the angle of my hand and it went very well. And I was left feeling, oh, so competent. And you don't, <laughs> you, you know, the next time when I had to do it actually by myself, I was, I realized that maybe, I had not given enough credit to all of the subtle adjustments that were being made without my realization. And I feel like that is effective teaching Yeah, <laughs> because, you, you know, because you feel like you're, you're doing it and there's someone there helping you. And then, you know, that, you know, the third time I, I just, I could do mm -hmm. it. Um, and then just being on an effective team, I think people who are good communicators and also good at utilizing you effectively there's some things, you know, when people give me um, clear instructions with enough room that I can make certain decisions on my own, I feel like that's very effective mm -hmm. with enough check-in. Something that's really frustrating as an intern is, you know, when um, you just don't know exactly what your job is. And so you can't really accomplish it. Yes. Um, and then people who get upset with that I don't think of as very effective managers because if they haven't told you what their expectations are, then how can you possibly accomplish them? Um, but I, I feel lucky that I've had a lot of um, people who are very good at communicating their expectations. And so I, mm -hmm. I do those expectations and then things go great. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a different kind of, yeah. Once you become a, like a senior resident and you're like a chief of a service, it's a different level of organization, right? Where it's just like, like I'm trauma chief right now. And so it's just, you're, or you're like organizing the schedule. You're trying to make sure all the patients who need surgery, get their surgery. There's tasks that need to be done and you need to like delegate them. There are some patients, you know, in the morning who I need to see them. And there are other patients who, you know, the junior residents can see. Um, and it's kind of, it's this very fluid and it really is something where it's just like, learning every single day. I'm like, okay, well that worked. And then another day you're like, mm, that didn't go so well. Um, and it's a learning process. And I feel like there should be, I feel like there should be education. Like I wish I'm going to, you know, I'm going to talk to Dr. Sochi about this. I'm going to be like, I want there to be an educational hour where we are taught how to, how to teach others. I'm sure we've done this before. And I might've just like daydreamed through it, but, um, I think that'd be helpful. I mean, there's just, there's some chiefs that I've worked with, you know, on ortho and, and even on gen search that are just so good at it. <laughs> Maybe they're just incredibly competent. And so, you know, they, they, they feel confident in making plans because of course we're all working under really the umbrella of attendings at this level. Yes. Um, but I think as you move up, you know, you grow increasingly confident in making plans that are consistent with 
what is appropriate patient care and what is also in line with, you know, what attendings feel is appropriate patient care. True. And I think I, I've, I've like working under, you know, competent, effective managers. It just, everything goes great and I feel great and everyone feels great. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, you're right. Becoming that can. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just, and you want to try to do everything that you can to become that. And it's like, how do you know if you are that? Right. Um, yeah. I'm sure yeah. you are that Alana. <laughs> uh, we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Um, Claire, I always love speaking with you because I always feel like I'm speaking with a philosopher every time I speak with you. And I would love to go into the final segment, which is the final five, which are the final five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix a Podcast. And so my first final five question for you, Claire, what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? Probably right now, as an intern, a total knee because I mm. get to do pretty much all of it. You do. And it's very fun. It involves all of the ortho things, mm-hmm. including sawing and hammering <laughs> and checking alignment. <laughs> so that's, that's probably my answer for now. That's a good answer. All right. And I know you have not yet given your ground rounds presentations at this residency, but what are your go-to topics for presentations when you give them? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I've given a lot of talks on global health. What specifically about global health? Um, bony management of traumas. Hmm particularly in orthopedics because hardware is expensive. Yes, you were telling me the sign mail. That's how much is that? It, it only, if you're a part of the sign program, all you have to pay for is shipping, which is about five cents a nail. Wow. I don't even know how much the nails that we put in our patients are, but that's, yeah, a that's incredible. That. A lot yeah. more than that. <laughs> Cost-effective analyses are cool. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Question number three. What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? This is usually the hard one. Mm. Yeah, there's so many. Okay, good. I was all about to say my, I hope there's one. <laughs> all of my orthopedic surgery experiences. I don't know, you know, it was pretty cool. Um before I was really an orthopedic intern to get to do some of this work with um, Dr. Sabatini in Uganda, some of this gluteal fibrosis stuff. That was, that was pretty exciting on a lot of different um, levels to get to, to be a part of that. It was very um, fulfilling and very satisfying. The procedure for gluteal fibrosis involves actually like snapping through fibrotic tissue and it, it's very ortho. Like. It is very ortho. And can you exp- please explain to our listeners why gluteal fibrosis is something that is not seen here in the States, but is seen out into, um, you guys were, was it Uganda? Where were you guys? Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. Uganda. I mean, I'm sure Dr. Sabatini would explain all this much better. The pathology does seem to be involved with, um, repeat injections, likely of quine, of quinine which is used to treat malaria. Um, 
especially in um, children with low BMIs, there's just not enough fatty tissue. And so they get a fibrotic contracture. And here in the US, most children do not have that BMI and are also not receiving repeat gluteal injections of quinine for malaria sure. prophylaxis or treatment. Um, so I'm not sure that the pathology even exists here. Yeah. But it, it's not just in you know, Sub-Saharan Africa. It, it also exists in certain parts of Asia. Hmm. Very cool. Number four, what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? I am a big water skier. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, I like to barefoot water ski and ski on bar stools. I mean, I have so many hobbies. I also juggle on a unicycle. Oh my God, you would. <laughs> I'm a very big birder, particularly um, birds of Southern Africa. And I like to hang out with my parents. Yeah. Oh my God, Claire, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, my final question for you, Claire. Um, what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in treating? And you are not allowed to have imposter syndrome in this moment. You do have things to say. And so I would love to hear what advice you have <laughs> for folks. I'm in training. I'm an intern. <laughs> but you get to see the other side that other folks don't see. Ergo, you, your words are unique in that sense. Okay, well, maybe I'll give some advice to myself then, since I'm an orthopedic surgeon in training. I support that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm having so much fun as an intern at this point. <laughs> I really don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe for the me who was applying into ortho, it was, it was such a stressful year and now it just, it's worked out so well. So I guess I hope that it, it works out this way for everyone who wants to go into ortho. It's such a cool field. It's really unlike any other branch of surgery that I've that I've yet encountered. So I guess I just I hope it works out for people. I hope they they can find a way to do it too if they really want to. Well done, Claire. Thank you so much for doing this. I um, am so excited that we finally got to do this. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Claire Donnelly. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening, and please stay safe.